Take your copies of God's Word, turn to John chapter 1, as we embark on this new and grand task together. We'll probably be in here for a while. Let's see, I've mapped out my sermons for the next, I don't know, seven months, and I think I've made it like two-thirds, eh, no, a third of the way through the book, so it'll be a while. And we're going to do five verses today, which is going to help us out in that speedy process. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord, it is for you today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made and was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Lord God above, we ask that you would speak again. You have spoken and made all that is. You have made creation by the word of your power. You have spoken in fullness in your Son. And now we ask that you would speak through his word to our very souls. Lord, we do not need to hear human words. We do not need to hear The opinions of a man, for even the most clever of human opinions, is filthy rags in comparison to the glorious truth of your revelation. Might we hear from heaven. May your word pass through this humble vessel and be a powerful source of change in all of our lives. And Lord, we ask desperately that we might see Jesus. You are so abundantly clear in your word that you love to give us good gifts. When we ask for wisdom, you don't scold us. You love to give wisdom. When we ask for things according to your will, you you promise to give them. And if you give those good things, surely you will give us Jesus, the best of all things. Give us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Colin Kaepernick is absolutely right for sitting and protesting the national anthem in America. Tim Tebow is the most underrated quarterback in NFL history. 
Donald Trump is on pace to be the new Ronald Reagan. Hillary Clinton will probably be our first felon president. Lindsey Graham is the best senator the state of South Carolina has ever had. Jesse Jackson's the best preacher from South Carolina. At some point, all of you cringed during one of those statements, and they were designed for that very purpose. You'll notice all of those, none of those are necessarily my views. I intentionally crafted statements that would make us cringe because they all highlighted somebody that is a polarizing figure in American culture. Colin Kaepernick this last week choosing not to stand for the national anthem, instead to sit or to kneel during it to protest the state of race relationships in America. Some call him a traitor. Some call him a hero. He's polarizing at his very core. Tim Tebow, who's likely to be picked up by the Atlanta Braves farm team this week for uh, playing minor league baseball. Go figure. Uh, Just a polarizing figure in sports. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Much less to talk about our presidential hopefuls. We're depending on what part of the country, or actually even what church in Charlotte right now, you go to, each one of those statements would be received very differently. Right? Some of them you go and you say, mention Jesse Jackson's name at all, and people cringe positively, and others, people cringe negatively. He's from Greenville. He's one of our own. All of these people point to that dividing line in culture where some go, yes, and some go, no. But all of them pale in comparison to the dividing line that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whose birth became the defining term for how we count our history dates. And yet has since been commandeered to say no longer in the year of our Lord. Now it's the common era. We can't say B.C. and A.D. It's B.C.E. and A.D.E. or what A.C.E. The common era. None has ever been as divisive of a human, polarizing of a human as the Lord Jesus. None has forced people to come to terms with the truth of who he is as clearly as the Lord Jesus. None has made as great of demands upon the mind and the heart and the body of those who interact with his truth. You see, the Lord Jesus is many things, but neutral is not and never has been one of them. And John understands that. And when we come to this book, you're going to see this entire book is crafted for that very purpose that as you listen to force you to come to terms with who he is. 
to burrow under your skin and into your skull and into your heart to force you to say, I will believe and submit or I will reject. But neutral is not an option. Neutral is not an option. It starts from the very beginning in these first five verses. Profound, rich, moving verses many of us have memorized, life-altering and demanding. This book is probably one of the, the last ones written, most likely, Taking a good guess, it's probably written the 80s, 90s, somewhere around there. It's written long enough after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Christ that people have really begun to talk. I mean, you think about it, they didn't have the internet. And so when Jesus comes and conducts his ministry, it's everything's kind of spread through word of mouth. And after he ascends to glory, that word of mouth spreads to the ends of the earth through persecution and through the writings but now here John the beloved disciple clearly intentionally and aggressively explains who is Jesus and what has he done and why does it matter these first five verses we're just going to look very quickly at a number of the attributes that he's going to explain that belong to Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus like? We're going to highlight some of those attributes. It's a little bit slightly different structure for a sermon, I guess, from me, but nonetheless important. First, Christ, the Lord Jesus, is eternal. In the beginning... John here echoes the beginning of the very book. The Bible, that is, not in the book of John. It's not echoing himself. He's echoing Genesis. In the beginning were the heavens and the earth. The Lord made them all, right? The Lord spoke as he made the heavens and the earth and all of this. Here it's not in the beginning God created, but rather in the beginning was the Word. Genesis 1.1 brings us into that moment of creation. John 1.1 actually brings us the moments prior to creation. Prior to the arrival of time and space and matter and energy. Prior to the arrival of koalas and kangaroos and trees and mulch and all kinds of interesting things that God has made and humans have built upon. Prior to the creation of stuff was the Word. Christ was and is and will be. He is eternal. Now it's interesting that, again, Christ being this great polarizing figure is going to make demands upon our lives. And if he is eternal, it means he is in some way different and greater and bigger than us. 
We have this thing kind of built into us called memory. And it helps us fix ourselves on the timeline of human history. I remember being in elementary school when the space shuttle blew up. That's a moment in time for me. I remember being in seminary when the towers blew up. It's a moment in time in history for me, but there is a moment in time where my history wasn't happening. It's called my birthday, right? My parents celebrate that day. It's a day that they had to tell me about because I don't remember it. The day when I made the arrival from in the womb to out of the womb. Really, that day had become, begun nine months before or so. But my history starts somewhere. John, in this simple beginning, is trying to call us to meditate on the fact that the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Christ, doesn't have that beginning moment. He doesn't have that moment when he wasn't there and then he was. From the very beginning of time, Christ was. And it's interesting too that as we begin to contemplate on his Contemplate the eternity of Christ and all that He is. This is again going to make us seem so much smaller than God's. Make us seem so fragile in His presence, so weak and puny, and it should. It's also interesting that this is the very first thing or one of the very first things that his enemies would go after. In the very earliest days in the church, people began to say, no, this this can't be true. It can't be. The man that Christ could be from all eternity. And so they manufacture what we call heresies. Doctrines that if you believe them, they lead you to hell. And one of the very first ones manufactured, made up, was that Christ was created. That if you look at his timeline, there's a moment where it starts, where there was nothing before, and then this happens, and then the second person of the Trinity follows. And friends, if you believe that, it will take you to hell. And you go, well, yeah, no one believes that. I mean, I've never even heard that before. Mm. Heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses? That's what they all believe. It's part of the doctrine of their false cult church. It's a problem. It's interestingly also what the Muslims believe. It's what every religion apart from Christianity believes about the Lord Jesus. No, instead the scriptures say he's eternal. He's from before time and space. He's always there. He has been and always will be. In the beginning was the Word. He's eternal. He is the Word of God. Now, that's a term that we don't really hear that often. 
In fact, actually, when you hear the word word used, it's going to mean a couple of different things. One, it's going to mean kind of a little linguistic construct, a grouping of letters, or depending on what age bracket you're in, it could mean true or right or awesome, right? I like this hamburger word. Yes, true, right. And the problem is both of those are not what's happening here in the text. John is writing in a very specific culture that has a very strong philosophical bent in which the vocabulary that he uses would have been very loaded. The term word, logos, would have been unbelievably loaded in that time because of the background of Greek philosophy. The Greeks captured so much of what it meant to be human and to think about our world, but think about it kind of largely from a non-Christian perspective. But interestingly, one of the themes that ran through much of Greek philosophy was there has to be some sort of wisdom or truth that connects it all together and holds it all in place. There are all kinds of moving parts and moving pieces, but the logos... The wisdom, divine wisdom, divine reason, divine logic, that's what binds it all together. Heraclitus, there's a name for you right there, huh? He even said, you know, nobody experiences the same thing twice. You can't step in the same river twice. Because if I step in it here, the time I go to step in it next, that water's already gone down. Everything changes. There's constant change. Everywhere is change. Everything is awesome. It's always change. Except the thing that holds it all together is the Logos. Wisdom unites it all. And it's interesting that John is taking a, a pagan concept of reason, wisdom, logic, it's all kind of bound up in this term and saying, guess what? All of those false definitions, all of those small little guesses at what that looks like, all of those vain attempts to say there's something that's ordering the world, all of them are pointing to and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what holds the world together? It's Christ. You don't want to know what helps organize and make sense out of everything. It's Christ. He is the wisdom of God. But not just the wisdom of God, like in content, but also in delivery. This is fun to think about that as we read this gospel to know that all of these Portraits and paintings of Jesus are going to display the wisdom of God's character and the man who communicated it to us. Both the content and the process. Christ is the Word, the eternal Word of God. You can stop right there, and that's amazing that King Jesus. The one who would step inside a poor virgin, Middle East, step inside her womb, would grow, would trust her to feed him and to change his diapers. It was the very eternal word of God, the wisdom of God incarnate. 
That right there would be profound enough that we could stop and just kind of think about forever and ever and ever, and it would be fantastic. John, however, does not stop and continues. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so we have this statement. Okay, Jesus. Okay, I get this. And the word was with God and the word was God. And so he's taking the eternity of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, and kind of building upon them to show that this is not simply some sort of superhuman. This is not some sort of Superman or Batman or your favorite comic book hero, whichever one it is, the Flash or whatever. This is a divine person. And you get to see this relationship. It's not, I mean, we have to look at other parts of Scripture to fully help us define how this works. But he introduces the Trinity to us. That Christ the Word was with God and Christ the Word was God. And again, this takes us back to that Genesis 1 account where in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and you have this Spirit of God moving over the darkness, moving over the waters of the earth. And you have already in Genesis 1 this introduction of God the Father is separate from another person, but still God. We would have seen that very easily in Genesis chapter 1 had I talked about it in a more lengthy way earlier. The Spirit is hovering over the waters and God speaks. And you have this idea of both being God but not the same person. And now John does that, but not with the Spirit, but with the Son. Christ is God. And He's with God. I'm not sure you can find a more polarizing sentence in all of human reality than verse 1. I cannot tell you how badly people hate that truth. How much they want to try to denude it of all content and reality to try to make it small and soft and blah and like kind of mushy toast. They want to make it meaningless. I love the History Channel for this. I love to watch the theologians, and I put them in air quotes because I don't really think they are, the theologians that they bring in on the History Channel by and large, and love watching how they speak about who Jesus is. They obviously don't believe this verse, the vast majority of them. You'll hear things like, well, he was a fantastic teacher. That's true. But that's like saying the sun is warm. It is true, but it's grossly deceiving. The sun is a wee bit more than warm. Unbearably hot. They say things like, well, he was a good man. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. It's true. But again, it's like saying the sun is warm. 
It doesn't help me any. Why? Because they're trying to reduce it to a small level as opposed to taking what the text says. He is God and he is with God. He is divine, but he's also separate from the Father. He is part of the triune God. And again, I I love to see how this is so polarizing. People hate this. So much so, again, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they like to pretend like we're all on the same side. They actually massacre the translation of this. I mean, really like hurt the translation of this to try to make it say something that it doesn't because they know this makes a truth claim upon my life. If this is true, I'm not God and I never will be. He's eternal. He is the Word. He is the triune God. Doesn't stop. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So going back to that Genesis 1 and you have... The Spirit hovering over the waters and you have God speaking. What does God speak? Well, He speaks the Word. Christ is the agent of creation. He's the agent of creation. So when the Father creates, He's creating through Christ. The Word of God calling forth Things from nothing. And this is so unbelievably important to remember as we continue through these stories. John does an amazing job of capturing the humanity of Christ. You have these tender moments. Unbelievable tenderness where he comes alongside the broken and lifts their spirits and ministers to them and heals broken hearts. But you cannot divorce that from the fact that he was the one who brought lions into existence. And hippopotamuses, how do you pronounce that plural? He's the one who is the agent of creation. As the Father speaks, he is that voice that makes it happen. Which again is intriguing. As he is the agent of creation, it clues us in yet again that our great Savior, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one whose name we take, we are Christians, we belong to Christ. He is the uncreated God. And that is a big, big deal. Nothing exists that he did not make. Doesn't stop, though. (laughs) In him was life. As if that kind of, in some sense, weren't already obvious. (laughs) If he's the agent of creation, everything that lives has come into being because of him and through him. How does it oak tree have life in it because Christ put it there. How does 
a rhinoceros have life within it because Christ put it there? How does the smallest little worm inching across the ground? Because Christ put life in it. He is life. Again, to just ponder that. You see, I'm not life. In fact, actually, it's amazing how easy it is to have life taken away. I mentioned the prayer earlier. One of the pastors in our presbytery lost his 21-year-old son this week. It was tragic. Broke my heart. I've prayed for them so much and cried for them. It hurts me because our lives are so fragile. One little nick in the wrong part of your body and you bleed out. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take much. And we're gone. We shuffle off this mortal coil into the life to come. Our lives are so fragile. Now, honestly, many of us now, Labor Day weekend, that's hard for us to kind of wrap our brains around. Wait until cold and flu season comes. And a full third of this room is not here because either they or their little ones have some sort of oozing thing coming from their face. And we begin to understand that so much more easily. Our lives are so fragile. The weather gets cold and we're like, we fall apart. He's the Lord of life. He's not fragile. He's not weak. You can't take his life from him like that. You think a cross could take his life from him? Even that. He's the Lord of life. He only has his life taken away by giving it up. Even the devil can't take that from him. He's life and he's light. Again, he's truth. It's shining in the world. And this truth, this reality, this life is unconquerable. I love this. In verse 5, it ends so beautifully, this section. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I love that because as you think through all of the truth claims the Bible is making about the Lord Jesus, every one of them so far, people hate. I mean, I can't say that strongly enough. They hate it. You go in other parts of this country, other religions, sadly, other churches, and I use that loosely, hate the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And yet John rounds it out to say, oh, by the way, though his enemies may hate them, they will never have victory over him. He is the conqueror, the overcomer, the victor. Again, I love that he's writing this later in kind of church history because he's had a number of decades, probably five decades to watch this truth be borne out as even as persecution has increased and the church is kind of scattered like roaches when you cut the light on and they all run around all over kind of Europe and North Africa and parts of Asia. And the result is not that the church has scattered and died. 
uh, again, actually, the Roach replication works, uh, the illustration works. They've scattered and multiplied. And everywhere they've gone, they've grown because Christ is the overcomer. Now, what do we do with this? Normally, I try to structure my points in such a way that it kind of makes some claim upon our lives from the very beginning. What do we do with this? These aren't truth claims that are, uh, Michael, you must do this. You must behave this way. You must treat your wife this way. How do I live in light of this? This is an interesting question. I'm going to challenge you with three responses. The first... I'm going to challenge you to believe this. That's why this entire book is written, is so that we might come to know Christ and believe in Him. And I don't mean that in the sense of just kind of an intellectual, well, okay, I believe that Jesus is God. Okay, I'm fine with that. I mean, I I believe that South Africa is beautiful. I've never been there. If Dwight and Dorothy show me ugly pictures of South Africa next week, I might be persuaded. I don't know. It's not my experience. I'm I'm hopefully kind of optimistic believing in something kind of out there. That's not what I'm talking about. Some kind of intellectual picture in your mind. Challenge you to believe in your heart. To have this portrait of the Lord Jesus become the defining understanding of your world. This week I had lunch with another pastor in our presbytery and we were discussing the kind of long-term consequences of the changing culture in which we're in. How our culture is obviously changing its relationship toward the church. It's obviously so. It's cutting uh, the support that has been there. It used to be that ministers got respect everywhere they went. Uh, all of the China trends show that our level of cultural respect is just slightly above used car salesmen right now, and I'm not actually making that up. Like that's actually where we are in terms of the uh, the polls. We used to be up near the top near like doctors and politicians, but that hasn't ended well for one of those other categories either. But ministers have lost their respectability and the church has lost its uniqueness. It's lost its specialness in the world and our culture is turning on it and seeking to destroy it. And this pastor was asking kind of rhetorically as we were walking out from lunch and he said, you know, I wonder, I wonder what the church looks like in 10 years, in 20 years. I wonder what our presbytery looks like. I wonder what our churches specifically look like. And I said, you know, honestly, my suspicion is it's going to look a lot smaller. The whole thing's going to look a lot smaller. Because one, it's going to become increasingly expensive to be a Christian. Because we're going to lose all our tax breaks and such. I mean, when they take away our tax-free status just as a church, it's probably going to close four churches in our presbytery within the first six months. So everything will be smaller. And everything will be higher stakes. There will be no more having the privilege of casual Christianity. 
There will be no more of this cultural Christianity thing which says, I can be a Christian. It's kind of part of my social network. You know, I have my little social network on Facebook or whatever, and I've got my, my work folks, and I've got my church folks, and I've got my neighborhood folks, and it's just kind of part of who I am and what I do in this area. That's not going to be the reality in this country in coming years. And honestly, the church will be smaller. The church will be more committed because we will lose our ability to be flippant or casual with the person of the Lord Jesus. So the challenge I'm extending now is to believe. But not just believe, that that is one, the truth claim to change your heart, to respond to who He is, but secondly is to worship Him. To just sit down and let the Lord Jesus blow your mind as to who He is. To think of him being the agent of creation and then stepping inside the womb that he created. That is really just mind-bogglingly amazing. And to think of him as being the one who sustains the world and was the one who was holding the molecules together in the cross and the nails and the bodies of the men who crucified him. He gave them the energy they used to try to kill him. That is amazing to contemplate who he is and to have wonder. And then lastly, is to proclaim. Believe, worship, and proclaim. Because the reality of the matter is as our culture knows less and less and less about the Bible, people will know less and less and less about Jesus. Increasingly, I mean, even in the South here, you hear, what is the extent of your knowledge of Jesus? It's, well, he died to save me from my sins. And I say, who cares? <laughs> my, I love that question immediately following. Watch people kind of panic. Um, well, I, I kind of do, first off. And I say, okay, well, why? Who cares that he died? What's the big deal? I, I, I don't know that. Because he's the uncreated eternal word of God on the cross for you. That's a big deal. You need to know that. They need to know that. The world needs to know that. Because it's also going to impact even things like the table. If Jesus is only a man... This is about to become one of the most awkward meals you're ever going to take. Because every time you eat and drink it, you're supposed to remember his death, at which point he was dead. And that's kind of all we got. But instead, if he's the eternal son of God who is also stepping into humanity... This meal becomes something very different as we remember not just that he died, but that he was raised and it was done on my behalf. That he could become sin for me, that he could provide salvation for me, that he is life and light and truth and even the grave could not contain him. It will change our world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us a clearer vision of Jesus. Give us the eyes to see and hearts to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.